if we have a new mutant. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Thursday the 2nd of June. This is the final money talk of a holiday-shortened week on Radio 3. Peter Lewis here with the day's business and finance news. Shanghai has begun to ease a two-month citywide lockdown. About 22.5 million residents, or 90% of Shanghai's population, living in low-risk precautionary zones were allowed to return to work from yesterday. All of the city's 2.67 million businesses have been allowed to reopen without requiring special permission to restart operations. Shops are reopened, with larger ones operating at 75% capacity, but cinemas, museums and gyms remain closed. Municipal authorities said we will return life and businesses to normality. Shanghai will do its utmost to make up for the lost ground caused by the virus outbreak. China's private manufacturing sector activity shrank for the third consecutive month in May, but the rate of contraction slowed from the month before. The Kaishin Manufacturing PMI came in at 48.1, compared to a reading of 46 in April, and, and below economists' expectations of 49. Hong Kong has returned to forcing close contacts of coronavirus-infected cases into government-run quarantine fac- facilities as cases in the city tick up once again because of the spread of highly infectious variants. The rule has been enforced for all 34 people with the newest forms of the virus in the city, thus far, officials said. Hong Kong saw a surprise jump in new COVID cases on Wednesday to 505, an increase of more than 50% from Tuesday. Hong Kong's retail sales surprisingly rebounded in April. Sales value rose 11.7% last month from a year earlier, far better than economists had expected, and a big improvement from March when retail sales plunged 13.8%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Andrew Sullivan of Outset Global with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold from SafePro Group. And don't forget the ways to get in contact with us. Text 63 Email Money Talk at rthk.hk. Take a look at our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks were weaker on Wednesday. After J.P. Morgan Chase Chief Executive Jamie Dimon warned investors to brace themselves from an economic hurricane caused by policy tightening by the Federal Reserve and the war in Ukraine. Yesterday, the Fed started its program to reduce its $9 trillion balance sheet. The S&P 500 eased 0.8% to 4,101. The Dow shed 177 points, or half a percent, to 32,813. And as that composite retreated 0.7% to 11,994. Shares of Facebook parent Meta fell 2.6% after Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Meta, announced that she's leaving the business after 14 years. She said she hoped to focus on her foundation and philanthropic work going forward. Javier Olivan, currently Meta's chief growth officer, will take over Ms. Sandberg's position in the company when she leaves. 
The Pan-European Stock 600 index fell 1%. The UK's FTSE 100 also dropped 1%. Hong Kong stocks fell on Wednesday following a week session on Wall Street. The Hang Seng Index snapped a three-day rally, dropping 120 points or 0.6% to 21,295. The tech index fell 1.1% and on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index was down 0.1% at 3,182. Jamie Dimon also warned investors that the war in Ukraine would continue to put pressure on global commodity markets and that the conflict could push oil prices up to $150 or $175 a barrel. Brent crude oil right now is 0.2% higher at $115.90 a barrel. Gold is half a percent higher at $1,847 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year US Treasury note rose 7 basis points to 2.91% as investors bet on more aggressive interest rate rises by central banks. Bonds were also pressured after the Bank of Canada increased its main interest rate by 50 basis points to 1.5%. Investors now expect the U.S. Fed funds to reach 3% by next February, according to futures markets, up from 2.8% at the start of the week. And the U.S. dollar index jumped 0.7% higher. The euro is trading right now at $1.6.5. The greenback is worth 130.2 Japanese yen. Sterling is worth just under $1.25, and it's at 9 Hong Kong dollars and 80 cents. The Chinese yuan is around 0.2% weaker at 6.69 and a half in offshore markets. And Bitcoin fell 7% to $29,800. Around Asia-Pacific markets this morning, uh, it's looking pretty weak. The ASX 200 in Australia off three quarters of a percent. Uh, Similar story for the Nikkei 225 in Japan. Uh, The Cosby is down about 0.9%. And futures markets are pointing to a drop of about 250 points for the Hang Seng at the Open later today. Just gone 809. Let's join our guests over in our Queensway studio. Personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fowl is with us. Morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Peter. And also with us, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Now, as you heard there, the city of Shanghai started to ease its two month uh, lockdown. Enzio, do you think um, the economy is now out of the woods now that we're starting to see these uh, lockdowns eliminated in Shanghai? Certainly for now, anyway. Absolutely not. I mean, there will be some short-term effects like the relief effects that we saw in Hong Kong. But just like the Ukraine invasion, there are parallels that the to be seen. There's a lot of economic scarring that has gone on in Shanghai that just isn't going to go away. Just because, it's like my wife recently said when I tried to build a fire at home, she said, well, would you please turn it off? She thought it was a gas hob. So <laughs> that didn't kind of go down very well with the punters. What I mean by this is that basically these these scars will last a long, long time because we're heading straight into a major global food crisis that started way before the Ukraine crisis. And also we have the demand side disruptions, um, the war, we have the stuff going on um, in Shanghai, people not being able to move from district to district. That mm. doesn't just sort of, it's not at the flick of a switch that you can turn these things back on. But what about, uh, so you don't think this is going to, the economy is going to rebound uh, like it did in 2020, where when the cities reopened again or 
China overall reopened, there was a lot of pent-up demand that came out and the economy rebounded quickly. Ah, big difference. And then I'll let Andrew please speak. Um, just, I, I think that we have these, the, the supply-side disruptions that we've got this time around are just a whole lot worse. And mm. that's, I think, the big difference to the earlier scenario. So um, that's why I'm sticking with this view that these, that this sort of stagflation that we've been rattling on about for some years now, that's actually going to happen Andrew, what do you think? Do you think uh, there's long-term damage now has been done to the economy? Yes, I mean, you know, they're talking about stimulus, they're talking about loans, but you know, businesses don't want loans when they've got no business to do. Mm. Um, there's no point in taking a loan if you've got no customers. And you know, allowing the low-risk areas to open up doesn't actually allow people complete freedom to move around the city. So you, know, you may be in a low-risk area, but the things you want might be in a high-risk area. You still can't go and get them. Um, I think there is an element of pent-up demand. I mean, a friend of mine, she, she works up there. She was very happy to be able to go to Hermes again. But the, mm. the whole mall is not going to be open until this weekend. So it, it's a very gradual process. But the key thing is that people are worried. People haven't been to work. They're not getting paid. Uh, they don't have the money to spend. And that's, that's going to cause that hiccup. I wish I had friends whose priority is to go to Hermes <laughs> since they could start shopping. But what about... Um consumer sentiment. It's fallen to a historic low. The country's consumer confidence index slumped to 86.7 in April from 113.2 uh, in March. It's the weakest level since the data was first available in 1991. The drop of 26.5 points from uh, March to April, also the largest on record. I'm wondering, you know, now that these lockdowns are being eased. As you mentioned, Andrew, people are starting to go out shopping again. Is it time maybe for something like consumption vouchers to try and boost confidence again and get people out? Well, I think it would be, but I don't think the Chinese economy can really afford that. Um, you know, government is spending a huge amount of money on all this testing. Uh, they're spending a huge amount of money on defence. They've you know, historically woefully under-expended on their hospital system, which is why they have this problem. And, and they still have this huge risk as people move out of, of the, you know, over 100 million people over 60 in, in China not being vaccinated properly. Mm. Uh, and even the vaccines that they have, they're stubborn in not taking the modern technology because they haven't developed themselves. So they're making this a, a political issue rather than a humanitarian one. Uh, and that's going to come back to bite them, I think. And NCO, do you think maybe it's time for to do things to boost the consumption side? Because there's been a lot of focus on things like infrastructure spending, but that doesn't really help consumer confidence, does it? Why won't China do what other countries did when they faced a similar crisis and really put money into consumers' pockets? Well, uh, this is a very good question. Uh, I just think that the if you're try if you're killing the economy on the one hand through COVID clampdowns, you can't then resuscitate the patient. You can't take, you can't stop the heart and then get the heart going again at the same time. Even I know that. Mm. So I just don't think that this is the, the whole sort of, that's why we came out last week saying that the China actually keeps tightening and the Fed for all for the most spurious of reasons keeps loosening. And so I, I think as long as they still maintain this over the, even these ricochet effects, the, this economic scarring, what I've called, um, that's going to last a long time and that's just not going to go away. So to introducing 33 measures with tax reductions, as Andrew was saying, you know, if you don't want to do business, there's no point in getting a loan. And, and you've compared uh, this lockdown of Shanghai to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yes. Is it going to end in the same place, which is stagflation? I think so, because both are 
resulting in supply-side disruptions and demand-side disruptions that are remarkably similar. Food, food, food shortages, um, Beijing, etc., Shanghai, Russia, Ukraine. So demand-side disruptions um, you've got in the Ukraine, the refugees, the scared citizens, well, they're hardly going to want, want to go to Andrew's famed Hermes shop, are they? <laughs> and um, you might. And... Um, if in if in as, as as he was saying in in Beijing and Shanghai, if you can't leave home, well, then how on earth can you get to the Hermes shop anyway? Do, do you think, Andrew, these two are similar, or is one worse? May, is is uh, the invasion of Ukraine or these lockdowns? Which one's having the bigger impact? Well, I think they're, they're, they're slightly different instances. I mean, Ukraine is is obviously a travesty of justice in the first place. Mm. Um, you then have the fact that you know Ukraine was a big grain exporter. Uh, and that's going to you know, add to the global slowdown as ho you know, food prices rise. Um, and it's, it, they, they are, the unfortunate thing is that you know, we, we've had a series of events that are culminating in a, in a very bad situation for the global, uh, the global economy. I mean, if we remember, before, even before the pandemic, you know, we'd, we'd had the sanctions or the, 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 t the tariffs against China and people were trying to move their supply chains. Then we had the pandemic, which meant that people couldn't move their supply chains, but were equally disadvantaged. Uh, then we had, you know, the, the supply chains getting further exacerbated by port congestion and things like that. Uh, and and that, all that you know, impacts on the whole global economy. And... Um, it, it's not really a matter of whether these two are similar or, or different. The, 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 the real po problem is the fact they're both happening at the same time, mm. and that's having a huge impact on the global economy. You mentioned a food crisis. Ratings agency S&P Global warned yesterday that investors are underestimating the severity of the global food shock, which they say is set to batter public finances and stir up social unrest in emerging market countries for years to come. They said in a report, rising energy and food prices represents yet further balance of payments, fiscal and growth shocks to the majority of emerging markets. Do you think people are underestimating the seriousness of what's happening with food prices, uh, including investors? Yes, I mean, I think the trouble is that, you know, a lot of countries are now having to be defensive, uh, you know, where they, you know, like Indonesia was previously exporting uh, palm oil, it's no longer going to do that. India has problems mm. uh, with grain. And, and it, it, it is going to be a knock-on effect, and it's going to affect everybody at the end of the day. And it's not just food. It's the fact that, you know, you look at Ukraine, the difficulties of planting because of the war going on there, the, the, the lack of uh, fertilisers, not just for Ukraine, but for the world. Um, and that means that if you can get fertilisers, the prices are going up. A lot of, the, a lot of countries rely on fertilisers in order to improve the yield to a manageable level. So if they can't get the fertilisers in the first place, or if the fertilisers go up exceptionally, then they have an option. Either they produce less or it costs more. Mm. Uh, and that's going to have a huge knock-on effect. Do, do you think, uh, Enzio, we're facing a global food crisis? It goes way beyond price hikes, as Andrew was just saying. The reason, of course, for the rising fertilizer prices inter, inter alia is not only because of supply-side disruptions, but also because of that famed energy crisis that we had. You know, Andrew and I can remember that back in the 70s. Mm. So, um, but I also think that what's going to worsen it is that the in the Ukraine, for instance, which accounts for about 28% of global wheat exports and 29% of global barley exports, um, that you're going to find 
that the there there isn't enough space in their current storage silos for the June harvest, and they don't have enough time and they don't have enough capacity to do the the June plantings mm. because again of of high energy costs and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a bit of a bleak story, and and I'm afraid that's going to re lead to a third world crisis that's going to make that's going to make the last third world crisis that we've seen for social unrest look pretty pretty tame in comparison. If you have 444 to 1.6 billion people simply not being fed, that makes for an angry populace. And I think, yeah, as Andy is saying there, the, the, the reality is this affects the low-income yes. uh, nations more than the, the, mm. the developed nations. Because they know, can't, the, it's a significant part of their income, isn't 25%. it? 25%. If you're a poorer country, it's a much yeah. bigger part of your income. Not only that, but it's, it's, it's the fact that this is, these are basics. You know, we're mm. not talking about an extra strawberry on two. We're talking about grain for bread, a, a daily basic, and that's, that's the real problem. Uh, you know, in the West, we we can forego you know exotic lettuces and things <laughs> like that without any trouble, mm. but we're talking about very basic p parts of the food chain for for a lot of people. So, do you think we're going to see more Sri Lankas, which had to default on its international debt because of partly because of surging food prices, which basically have led to its foreign reserves running out, it's facing protests, its social instability? Are there going to be more Sri Lankas coming along? I certainly think so. I mean, I think the, the big worry is the fact that, you know, you look at some of the bigger nations like Egypt that are very reliant on Ukrainian grain in the past and are very, have a very volatile population. I mean, Egypt has done very well over the last 10 years. It's got itself out of a, you know, a huge mess 10 years ago, but it's now facing another crisis. And, you know, once populations start becoming unstable, then, then governments have a lot to worry. And I think that is also going to be a problem for China. You know, China's had lockdown. It's had social dissent there. If if people start seeing, you know, uprisings in other parts of the world, that'll certainly worry the Beijing government. Let me ask you about the markets. Um, it's been quite a, a, oh. a, a notable month of May. The S&P 500, um, after five months, is now facing its biggest year-to-date loss since 1970. And if you run a diversified portfolio of both bonds and stocks, you're facing the worst losses uh, start to a year um, ever. What, what do you think? Do you think um, we're now reaching a point at which uh, we're, we're, we're heading for a bottom and things are now down so much that maybe uh, it's starting to, uh, starting to bottom out? What, what's your thoughts going forward from here? Well, certainly valuations have come off significantly, uh, as have expectations, I think. Um, you know, we've got a, a whole new environment of the Fed raising rates, which we haven't seen for many, many years. Uh, and that's causing a lot of people concerns. But I think the thing is, you know, for investors, it's not about whether it's going to be cheaper in six months' time or is it cheap now. The thing is, if you do the valuation and you go back to the fundamentals and it's, it's looking you know, reasonably priced at the moment, you buy some. You don't go all in. Mm. Um, you buy some, and then even six months later, if it's cheaper, you buy more. Um, if it's gone up, then you, 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 you benefit from the profit. So I think it's a, it's a time to be cautiously optimistic. Um, you need to put money to work, that's certain. Um, interest rates are going to go up, so you know, that's going to mean that there are alternatives that we haven't seen for a while. Because for ages, it's, there's been no alternative. You ha it's not been worth your while keeping the money in the bank. But uh, some of these governments are going to start raising rates very quickly because they have to. Enzio, one of the changes that we saw in May that was quite noticeable, we talked about inflation a lot, mm. but people, the narratives have started to change now. Rather than risks to inflation, uh, investors have been talking more about growth risks. Do you think they're right to focus on that now? Sure, because the... Uh, 
it, it again ties back into this whole stagflation stuff because in America, for all as, as crazy as it really sounds, the Fed has been tightening, not loosening. Now, what on earth could I mean by that? Well, we went through the arithmetic last week. If the inflation rate is 8% and the Fed funds are 1%, then the real Fed funds are actually minus 7%. So there's no policy tightening going on yet. And so that means that there's a long way to temporary. There's a long way for the Fed to go before it so to speak, kills inflation. But killing inflation is just like trying to kill the COVID stuff. It can't be done because the Fed, in its herd immun intellectual herd immunity, has decided to totally disregard supply-side-driven inflation, supply-side bottlenecks, which have nothing but nothing to do with interest rates. Do you think they'll go as far as maybe some people are talking about? We had Christopher Waller, um, a Fed governor this week, uh, talking about several 50 basis point rate hikes and actually raising above the neutral rates to try and slow down the economy. Well, yes, they will, but they'll go after it with a sledgehammer trying to sort of kill the ant because that's then what's going to lead to this recession. That's why people are getting a little bit queasy in the old Consumer Confidence Survey Department. So, um, and, and I don't, and again, just because you keep on throwing darts and, and bombs at the demand-driven inflation doesn't mean that the supply-side constraints will be alleviated. Quite on the contrary, they will be tightening even more on the supply side, so it gets even worse. I think I think the key thing here is is inflation is really about people's expectations, mm -hmm. and and the fact is that you know generally speaking, people get a pay review once a year. So you look at the fact that you've lost money over the next last year, and you think about how much money you're going to lose over the next year, uh, and you, you that's what drives inflation. It's the fact that it's not that you think, oh, it, I need my wages to go up by eight percent or whatever inflation is running at. You think, well, I've lost eight percent last year. I'm likely to lose another eight percent this year, so I need to ask for twenty percent, mm -hmm. uh, and that then becomes a vicious spiral on the upside that makes it very difficult for employers um, to really to meet that, and, and and that's something that governments you know really can't actually address in, in raising interest rates. Besides which, just to add to that, a lot of people don't want to work anymore, so there you have another supply-side constraint. In other mm -hmm. words, the rising wage is not just because too much money chasing too few goods, because but too few people in the labor force not willing to work. There's, there are twice as many vacancies as unemployed in America, full stop. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Enjoy the long weekend. You heard their personal wealth advisor, Enzia von Fahl, Andrew Sullivan, who's Managing Director at Outset Global. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.25 on the phone from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. I want to get your comments on something that Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said on Tuesday. He warned that the US strategy towards China has pushed the two nations into confrontation, threatening turmoil for other countries. He said the current atmosphere of China-US relations is very abnormal and the extreme anxiety of the US is completely unnecessary. And he also accused the US of disrupting peace in the Taiwan Strait and for deciding the two countries were rivals. Um, I suppose it's certainly true, isn't it, that the last couple of weeks haven't been great uh, for, for US-China uh, relations, but are you seeing them at, uh, at a historic low now? Uh, it's easy to make these broad statements, such as the foreign minister made. I mean, look, relations have not been uh, the happy times that they were, say, maybe 
10, 15 years ago, and there, there's so many different issues across so many uh, policy areas that are causing this divide, whether that's trade being an obvious one, human rights being an obvious one, Taiwan being an obvious one. So to hear this kind of language coming from China, it, it, it's not a surprise. It's certainly not the first time. Uh, state media often tends to be a little more direct, or the spokespeople from different government agencies often tend to be a little more direct than people at the top of the leadership. Uh, such as the foreign minister. But we shouldn't be surprised by these words. And uh, they probably look at the words and the language that comes out from the U.S. as, as being the equivalent, even if uh, you know, Secretary Blinken, for example, he'd probably say, oh, but my speech talked about uh, you know, areas where we still could cooperate. I didn't use such harsh language, even though I was critical. Uh, so part of it also is a cultural approach. And then there's another important factor that we should keep in mind as well. These kinds of statements, uh, whether from the U.S. side or the Chinese side, are also often for domestic consumption as well, not, mm. not necessarily for the other side. Do you, do you think anything has changed in the U.S. position or is it just doing what it's all, always said uh, it's going to do? It's just that maybe uh, Ch China now uh, is feeling that it can be more forceful about standing up to, to U.S. policy. Well, the the struggle I would say that uh, commentators like, like me might have is you know, the Trump administration had implemented so many different policies with mm -hmm. regard to China. They like to use that phrase, whole of government, whether it was the State Department, Defense Department, Commerce, Education, et cetera, et cetera. And the Biden administration has, has maintained many but not all they didn't implement as many aggressive new policies as the second Trump administration had. They've done some things, such as you know, the, the recently announced Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, AUKUS, uh, last year. And they would say this shows that we're, we are really, really tough on, on China. Uh, but, but uh, again, I, I think it's fair to say that, that the Biden administration hasn't followed up as aggressively on the Trump administration uh, policies. And, and that kind of leaves us wondering, like, okay, is the U.S. really uh, doing more? Are they really tougher? Are they really causing uh, a second Cold War? Or, or is it uh, overreaction from China? Or if we look at it from the Chinese perspective, are they justified in saying that uh, the U.S. side is the one making this worse. Uh, you, know, you, you could go either way, you know, but for those of us who are on the ground, we're, we're, we're in China, we're in Hong Kong, we're in Taiwan, we're doing business, you know, we still got to figure out uh, how to do our day-to-day -day, uh, business and dealing with clients, and uh, it makes it very t difficult to try and predict what will come next. Mm. Do, you, do you think um, Anthony Blinken's speech last week, did it uh, clarify uh, the U.S.'s uh, sort of the, the, the Biden administration's policy towards China? I, I don't think so. Uh, and this is the criticism, uh, and I alluded to a little bit earlier, that we, we don't know exactly what the Biden administration is going to do. They, they have not really articulated clearly. Uh, it's taken a long time even to get to this point. It took them so long to come out with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and then, it, you know, kind of lack specifics. Uh, the China speech was kind of meandering, in my opinion. It, it, it didn't really condense it down to, to here's exactly what we're going to do next. Uh, so uh, what, what will come next? You know, how do we react? I, I think these are still very much uh, question marks. And mm -hmm. the Biden so, administration, <laughs> in a way, they're almost running out of time because so, so, uh, if they don't do well in, 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 the, in, in the midterms, they're, they're going to be a lame duck administration. Where, where does Taiwan fit into this? Because uh, the U.S. and Taiwan have been 
talking about deepening economic um, and, and trade relations. We had Catherine Tai meeting with her Taiwanese counterpart a couple of weeks ago. Um, is that going to be a big issue? Well, Taiwan will probably be, be a big issue, uh, more on the military side, I think. Uh, it, it seems pretty clear that the, the Biden administration uh, kept Taiwan out of the Indo-Pacific economic framework as a way uh, to have one less uh, pressure point or, or arguing point in the relationship with China. Uh, and I think also some of the other participating countries didn't want the, that hassle, frankly, as well. So what, what did the U.S. do? They basically repackaged existing dialogues with Taiwan to come up with a new name. But this okay. kind of dialogue's been going on. It's not a free trade agreement. So, okay. Well, you know, thank it, you. it seems the Biden administration wants to limit Thanks very much, Ross. Sadly, we've run out of time, but that's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets in the region, the SX200 is now down 0.9%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan off about 0.7%. Same for the Cosby in South Korea. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 200 points lower later on this morning. Tomorrow's a public holiday in Hong Kong for Dragon Boat Day, so Money Talk will return next on Monday. But I shall be here tomorrow morning from 6 to 10 with a special holiday show of music, guests and chats. So please join me for that if you can. Stay tuned for COVID updates after the news with Jim Gould and James Ockenden. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, few showers, hot with sunny intervals. Maximum temperature is going to be about 31 degrees in the urban areas. Going to be persistently hot with sunny periods and a few showers on the Dragon Boat Festival and during the weekend. Uh, temperature right now, 29 degrees, 81% relative humidity. Time's 8.32. Here's Ben Che with the Half Hour News. Hong Kong has recorded 505 new COVID cases, the highest daily figure for more than a month. The Center for Health Protection says there's been a spike in the number of people submitting positive rapid test results, but subsequently testing negative with a PCR test. It says while this suggests an increase in false positives, the situation will be monitored to gauge whether or not there's been a genuine increase in cases. CHP controller Edwin Choi says the rise may be related to the vaccine pass scheme, which requires people to be triple jabbed. In recent days, we find that the so-called false negative ratio is higher. So here I would like to remind the public, if you didn't test positive on the day, don't use our self-report platform to report your case. If you want a recovery record or to satisfy the vaccine pass, the best way is to get jabbed. Then you can fulfill the triple jab requirement. Health officials say they're drawing up a response plan for monkeypox in, res- in case there's an outbreak in Hong Kong. More from Todd Harding. Doctors will have to report all suspected or confirmed cases to the Department of Health. Officials said the government and the hospital authority are preparing to purchase the necessary vaccines and medicines and are formulating recommendations on clinical treatment. A number of European and North American countries have reported cases of monkeypox, normally found in Africa, since May. A jury in Virginia has found that the actress Amber Heard defamed her ex-husband Johnny Depp after a six-week trial that transfixed America as the two Hollywood stars traded accusations of physical abuse. The jury awarded Johnny Depp $15 million over an article in 2018 in which Amber Heard said she represented domestic abuse. In a statement, Mr. Depp said the jury had given him his life back. Ms. Heard said she was disappointed by the verdict. Here's the BBC's David Salito. 
Over six weeks, Amber Heard had been accused of lying, faking injuries, fabricating evidence. And online? I receive hundreds of death threats regularly, if not daily. This was a case all about words. Amber Heard's right to say she was a victim of domestic violence, an accusation that Johnny Depp says was simply a lie. He was the victim here, and the jury and much of the watching public has, after hearing it all, believed him. You're listening to the news on RTHK.